out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter, guitarist John Donaldson, who I spoke to very recently, who also goes by the name of J.D. Meatyard, his solo work. So for those who may or may not know, but I'll give you a bit of a background. He was in various bands in the 80s in Liverpool, generally, um, and then went into or formed the Levelers Five. Levelers Five, not the Levelers. And then with that band, they became the Kelvin Party. And then from the Kelvin Party, they, he then became a solo artist, basically. And he was on Probe Plus Records, which was the same label as Half Man, Half Biscuit. So we do talk about all that and stuff. Anyway, look, I won't bore you anymore, but you get the general gist. And we do chat quite a lot about this and that. So it's a bit, you know, it's all over the place, really. But it's kind of fascinating. Also, because this is a long distance call, well, longish, um, it does freeze occasionally, but don't worry, it's all there. And it's good. So look, um, after several minutes of casual chat, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. John, JD, Take it away. Just a wee bit earlier than that, um, but it was no, it was it was seventies, mid seventies, now. Um, I was brought up in a Glasgow family where it was like rebel songs or uh, country and western, right? And uh, and I hated it. Don't hate it anymore, but I hated it then. And uh, dub and reggae hit me, Blimey. and that really, that really changed things. Uh, and then. Um, I don't know which was the first. I'd always everybody was into the Beatles and all that sort of thing, and uh, but then along came Lou Reed. I was in a bar in somewhere, and uh, Walk on the Wild Side came on, and uh, that blew me. That was uh, and, and Captain Beefheart in the same jukebox. Right. That was. Actually wrote, they actually wrote a song about it, and uh, that was my latest album. Yes. Uh, two years <laughs> ago, the Bat Chain Pullers, uh, but it's, it's not about uh, Captain Beefheart. It's about the, uh, the boys and girls in the in the bars and in, in those days, and that they changed my life. Yes. And, it, and it, of course, the reading the Velvets and all that opened the door for my obsession with New York and uh, art and everything else. Uh, once you're into, I, I have a terrible thing. Once I'm into something, I trace it all backwards, and uh, yeah, I end up uh, yeah, I end up playing the. Uh, I was at the Anti-Folk Festival in New York a couple of times and stuff like that. Just wandering around looking at street signs in New York. And that was another, that was another Velvet song and all that. Yes, yeah. that's, a, that's <laughs> quite something. Well, I, I guess at that stage, you know, I suppose, you know, there was those kind of glam bands like Sweet and Slade, T-Rex and, you know, Gary Glitter, obviously. But it was David Bowie's Space Oddity that was my first single and my first love. And, and luckily Bowie stayed with me. But, Is that right? Yeah. Well, and, well, uh, my first songs I played outside cowboy songs on an acoustic guitar, my father's acoustic guitar, was actually from a David Bowie album. They used to they used to sell uh, they sell like a booklet for the album a long time ago. Yes. And in, in, instead of the A C D and you know, all F and G's and all that, they'd actually give you where to put your fingers for each 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 line. And it was it was hunky dory, that was it. Blimey. Uh, that's where I started play, playing, uh, playing, uh, just strumming along, and it was the Hunky Dory album. Yes. I loved, I loved the, oh, marvellous, marvellous stuff. Marvelous. It was, it was kind of perfect pop. I mean, the B-side had Changes and Velvet Goldmine, and I thought, God, B-sides are brilliant, but, you know, that was, that was a bit of a false storm, wasn't it, really? It just went down ever since, really. Changes, could you imagine that as a young kid just putting that on and going? Oh, God, I. The lyrics, the lyrics, it's all in. So what's your, what, what were your parents like? Were they, you know, you mentioned country and western. See, my parents were into country and western. Well, my dad was. And he liked things like Boxcar Willie and Jim Reeves and, and right. Charlie Pride and Tammy Wynette. And so my, I was a bit, um, yeah. country made me feel slightly uneasy for a long time until yeah. I started to listen to other country and western. I thought, ah, okay, it's not all Boxcar Willie and Jim Reeves. And, um, okay. Well, my dad used to play, they used to play, um, when I was very young, my dad used to play every weekend. Family had come round, and uh, there'd be no. It'd just be live music. There'd be two of my brother be on guitar, my dad be on guitar, my sister and my mother singing, my dad singing, and all that. And it was all. That was every weekend. 
That was like the, you like the Osmonds, weren't you? <laughs> mm, okay, I can take that. <laughs> well, we didn't, you know. I mean, you know, we didn't have a record player because I think when, you know, from this kind of working class background, I think from that 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 uh, generation, they never had debt, and so they would just sell anything or just, uh, you know, get a part time job, cash in hand, all that kind of malarkey, and uh, uh, you know, save money to buy something. So I think when my parents got married, they just sold everything, including you know, the record player and the records, and then the record right. player... Oh, damn. <laughs> the record player appeared in the early 70s, and that was kind of, you know, that was it. Other, yeah. other than that, we used to be listening to Top of the Pops and the Top yeah. 40 on a Sunday. So did you say you were from Glasgow? Yeah, I was born in Glasgow, but I moved early down to near Manchester and, uh, when I was about eight, seven or eight or nine. Right. But, uh, I remember I used I used to go up for the games for football and all that when I lived when I lived back in in Manchester and Liverpool. Um, I've still got family there. Uh, um, and yeah, it was. I mean, I used to once a month the uh, uh, country and western stuff would come in on a ship and a boat into the uh, into the harbour, and people would be queuing up in uh, two record stores in the centre of Glasgow. And they would have all the uh, up-to-date country and western music and all that. So it was very big. And why? I don't know. No idea. But uh, yeah, so I'm still family and all that there. And, and yeah, it's, uh, now I'm 2,300 miles away, I think, in, uh, in Malaga. I'm nearly a Malaguenio. Yes, I can see you wearing a T-shirt. It's raining all day here, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, should I tell you? It's 28 degrees here today. Yeah. We've got the heating on, by the way. It's It's... Mm, that is nice. Oh my God, that's not that's not the grey streets, is it, of Glasgow or Manchester or Liverpool? No, I think we're thirty-four steps away from the sand. Yeah, you can see. We're, I've got this is this we're is, very this is May. Time. I've got a jumper, a hoodie, and the heating on, and it's rained all day. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, when it gets uh, when it gets July or August here, I get punished. I get hammered. Good. I've got I've got freckly Gaelic skin. Uh, I'm not built for this. Yeah, it gets up to four, I think 45 has been the hottest it's been. God, it's like Death Valley in, in America. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, the only I think the only downside it's great. The, the neighbours are good. This the east side of Malaga. There's um, there are not so many tourists, and the tourists that come are generally uh, Spaniards, Madridistas. They come down here and all that. And the other side, I don't like at all. Uh, um, what's it called? Uh, yeah, and you know, Marbella and all that. It's just mobbed with, uh, well, with Brits. Um, yeah, and it's a different climate altogether. It's a different yes, thing. Yes. Well, I suppose last year must have been a bit different, though. Uh, well, I never go down that side. I'm always here. It's an old fishing community. Yes. Uh, um, and the neighbours are proper. When we moved in, you know, they don't laugh at you anymore for being a vegetarian, but. They didn't know on the yeah the day we moved in they brought out a big pot of fish all wriggling away yeah welcome and I was like oh Jesus yeah yes. but it's good it's we're very very lucky we're very lucky yes. oh nice no, the we go for breakfast and it's you know I play in you play in Amsterdam uh, last time whatever before the lockdown twelve euros for your breakfast I go for my breakfast here it's three euros twenty <laughs> eat out all the time. So look, uh, they do. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yes. Anyway, we're just going to have a hot water bottle later. No. So as the seventies rocked on, you're a bit older than me. Did the punk kind of world sort of? What was the moment that you thought I might be in a band? Um, it was definitely, uh, yeah, the, the punk thing. Ab- absolutely. Uh, that, that. Although I'd been playing guitar at time, I was in a band. We got called Side Effect in the late 70s or something, was it mid-70s? I don't know. Uh, and we got Single of the Week in the Melody Maker. Uh, um, I can't remember what was it called, Sadie. I'm just looking now. Ah, uh, abusing myself. Uh, <laughs> we got Single of the Week in the Melody Maker. Nice. Uh, and, yeah, we, it was like everything else, we screwed it up. I don't know how we screwed it up. And then it became Level as Five, 1990. But it was certainly the... Uh, Certainly, the 80s, the 80s was the thing. I was in bands in and out uh, uh, all the time, writing songs. But the recording really started with the level of five, yes. 1990. Uh, we'll set in... it the album of the year. 
Brilliant. Were you were you in bands all the way through the eighties? Then were you just kind of? I was in the band called Side Effect, and then it was the Effect, and then I was. Yeah, I've always been. I've always been playing as much as I can. Yeah. Yes, and, and always when, running. And when did you when did you start sort of picking up a musical instrument and sort of thinking this could be my thing? Uh, definitely. Yeah, as the punk thing broke. As, as, all, as all that came in, I kind of think who was who was the, who was the first ones. I can't remember now. Uh, but yeah, I was around. The pistols were breaking. Everything that was a bit later on when they, when they were making it big. But the changes were there, and you could hear them. And uh, I was always listening, always uh, listening to the radio, getting stuff off pals and stuff. And uh, and and certainly, I think the links with uh, the 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 bridge uh, of the dub and the reggae that opened the doors to things as well. Yes, well, absolutely. The one in a dozen, the one in two dozen that was into that, and the other guy that was into it would say, "Here, have a listen to this." And so you're always getting things passed to you. Yeah. So, when did yeah. you start? Li- when did you start listening to John Peel? Um, um, when would that be? I must say, it must be. It must be the eighties. Must, must be kind of, I don't think it was the 70s or anything like that. Might have been on and off in the 70s. Um, yeah. But there was a show that was connected in Blackburn and Lancashire uh, called The Wire, On The Wire. Right, was that Steve? Yes, yes. And he used to be, in, he, would, he would be always, are you doing anything? Send us a demo or anything like that. And I think it was Steve and Fenny, his buddy. Uh, it was them that passed the... Uh, the uh, the track started John Peel and introduced John Peel to, to me. Yeah. And uh, then I was really, yeah, obviously I was into it then. Yeah. So, I, yeah, again, I don't know, late 70s, 80s, early 80s, I started getting into Peel. And, Five did you, and did you go to places like Eric's in Liverpool and start sort of, were you part of that kind of scene at all? I never got a gig at Eric's, uh, but uh, oh no, it's on another album, JD Meteor, Ubu at Eric's. Is a, a song I wrote, and uh, David Thomas got in touch with me about it. They were playing it; they've been playing my song "Ubu at Eric's" uh, on the probe. Uh, uh, Ubu have their own radio channel thing, right? Or Zoom thing or whatever, and they've been playing my song on it. And they got in touch and said, "I love your song." It was very simple. I've used it a few times. I just write songs using uh, all of their song titles and make it into a song. And uh, David Thomas was. Hey, it's pretty much knocked out. I was at Eric's when Ubu did the first show at Eric's. Right. And that was seriously life-changing. When you've, got a guy, when you've got a guy there stumbling on his stage and, the, you know, the, the size the boy is, and he's hammering hell out of this big lump of iron by a big iron hammer. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is this? It was amazing. It was, it was fantastic. A guy that ran Eric's, he gave us a gig. We, had, we headlined in... Um, there's hardly anybody there at the international in Manchester. Um, Roger Eagle, he was very famous. He took he took over Eric's, and then the international in Manchester, and all that. Um, yeah, but Eric's was fantastic. Eric's Planet X, all around there in Liverpool. We played all those things, um, mostly with the biscuits. Right, half and half biscuit. Yes, I have to say when when half I mean when half man half biscuit appeared. I just remember, you know, John Peel played them all the time and, you know, Trump and Lights was a classic and, you know, we kind of loved it. And there was, you know, reference to Bob, Bob Wilson and Dickie Davis and, you know, all these kind of things. It just was, they were just very witty songs and they are still very clever, aren't they? I mean, he's just, just kind of great songwriters. Or he's it's something song. else. It's, Nigel's work is something else. Yeah. And then we, um, and there we was started that... in October, hopefully. Yes. Uh, the Gig Cartel was in touch. Just this week's been some week. Gig Cartel got in touch this week. They did the bookings and that. And they're very confident in October it's all going to kick off again. So we were the Biscuits uh, in October. Uh, Home Firth, Blackpool, Manchester. Uh, I'm sure Norwich is, uh, what do you Possibly. call it? Sure. That would be good. Yeah. That would be good. I will let you know. Yeah, it would be fantastic. Now, was it true on the biscuit front? Because I remember they had a gig. They could have played the two, but the local, the football team they supported was playing Friday night. So they said, "No, we can't." I mean, Is that true? Right. I was. I believe so. That was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I believe uh, somebody, uh, Channel 4, uh, somebody said they'd pick them up on a helicopter from a gig in Newcastle. Well, of course, anybody that knows Nigel, he's only been abroad once, and that was five gigs. He's never been abroad since, and he will never go abroad again. And um, would he get in a helicopter? <laughs> no, not a Captain Hell's chance. No, no. I mean, Jeff said to him back in the day, he said, look, there's, there's a tunnel there. You just stay in the van, and we'll take you through to... Uh, to France and we'll get in uh, Nigel of course being Nigel no no he got offered 10 grand to do a show a couple of years ago in Liverpool a celebration of uh, Liverpool music although he's a woolly back he's not yeah. really a scout he's from across the water the world he says he's a woolly back himself it's not me calling names uh, he got t- offered 10 grand a bus ride to do a song to do like uh, eight nine songs Nigel that's just, that's just the way it is. Will you do an interview for No. <laughs> Leave me alone. As long as he's got enough to pay his bills and the other boys get a few, few quid, that's, that's Nigel. That's, right. That's, he's happy as can be, just doing enough. That's, that's it. That's amazing that no one's done a documentary because everyone's done. If you notice that, that this passing of time, which I've sort of realised doing this show, but also just seeing what's come out in the last few years, there's been just lots of books and compilations and archive stuff and films you know from 25 30 years ago I think there's a period of passing of time where you know we just take things for granted and then you think oh actually that's quite good and there was one on the Nightingales recently wasn't there King Rocker I don't know if you saw it Stuart Lee narrated it no I didn't see that oh it's a like you'll love it and slightly you know it will make you laugh and cry at the same time because it was all about Rob Lloyd and his amazing life even though you don't think there's going to be that much to it when they started making it there's all these other layers and it is kind of boggling so it does make you think that can't be that interesting but it's it's fantastic but then you know there's been films on the chills and the go-betweens even the wedding presents album George Best and you know loads of books yeah Um, I've noticed there's been lots of photographic books coming out which have been which I'm just looking at but you know people have taken pictures of the sort of late 70s and 80s obviously Mm. negatives no one gives a toss and then they go oh actually they're quite amazing photographs and then they sort of think Actually, do a book. So there's ones on, you know, New York and the Boston rock scene, which they love, and also That's the guy right. who did um, oh, the Sex Pistols on, yeah, this is it, Kevin Cummings. He, you know, 1976, wow. Christmas Day. He said, wow. you know, that that only came out last year, but he said that, you know, it took that amount of time before people thought that would be worth a book. And he thought, well, I suppose, yeah, that's so. yeah. all the ages coming around. I think to to uh, to reflect on it, and um, I've always got either a. I don't know, a political book or a, or a music book on the go. Uh, and I've been playing through quite a, quite a lot and loving it. One of the things that gets me most is I was so naive. Um, I missed all the, the business side of it. I really did. I, not that I missed it, I, regre- uh, I regret it. I didn't. Re- I, I had no idea. I never realised that you've got to play the game. And when Derek Ryder was our manager, I screwed that up. When and he got all the factory people to come and see us. I know, there's so many occasions, and I never took it seri- really seriously. Yes, I always, I always had this thing in my mind: you're selling out, you don't sell out, don't sell out. And that was in the studio as well. No, I don't want a big production. No, I'm not doing. I'm not doing another take. That's it. Right. I was wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, it was in the because well last week, and I, you know, I just had the opportunity, and I thought, well, oh, that'd be amazing. I did an interview with Miles Copeland, of you know, he he, I mean, an amazing life story. And now his book will be interesting, even if you didn't, you know, particularly think he was a great guy because then when he was young you know he managed wishbone ash then he did a tour he was going to do a he's still as a really young kid a five act tour including lou reed as the headline and um Is that when, right? but so so when he was doing this he got wow. in touch with lou reed's um partner who sounded like a boyfriend and he said well where's yeah. lou and he said he's in the toilet and he said well that's okay i'll wait he said he's been there for three days it's like oh shit lou's not coming out the toilet is he so he didn't turn up but he gets these other these other kind of acts and he loses an absolute and utter fortune yeah that's oh, it. that's <laughs> old victor isn't it yeah. victor yeah i did an uh, interview with victor as well he was quite did you, really? yeah. did you really yeah i know you got hammered it doesn't spare the blades on Lou, does he? He tells it like it was. 
I believe. So anyway, uh, it was an, uh, yet another, not an easy guy to get along with was, uh, was Lou, much as no. I love his work. Well, it's an amazing story. Well, actually, it's interesting about Victor because there's a, there's a moment where he was so broke that he kind of invites, you know, a few people around, you know, Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol, and he doesn't have any money for food. So he goes to a garage and gets them a bit of food. There's an amazing photograph of, because apparently, oh, William Burroughs is the other one. Okay, you get William Burroughs, Mick Jagger, Andy Warhol for around for lunch, and you don't have any money for food. So you go to a garage and get some. And apparently it was a terrible evening. I'm thinking, and you look at this photograph, and they all look really pissed off with each other, and they're just sitting there. And you're just thinking, now, Victor, you, you could have hustled a bit of cash and, and prepared for that. But he said, that was a bad evening. It was like, I know, but Christ. I mean, that's an amazing guest list, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Again, back to that. It was the music that opened the doors for um, Andy, my interest in Andy Warhol, Mapplethorpe, the whole thing, the uh, the factory, CBGBs, everything. It, it all began with listening to uh, uh, Lou Reed and Walking the Wild Side. Yeah. That's what well, it all started from. Well, it is and, interesting because um, I have been a bit obsessed with that scene. So I've been interviewing lots of bands from that. and. Um, yeah, because there's a guy who did a book called ooh, The Mud Club, which was quite, a, it's worth checking out if you get a chance to get The Mud Club. Um, and then that, the Mud Club, right. The Mud Club. I'll, I, but then I've done these interviews with these guys who were in the band. They were in a rockabilly band in Essex called The Rock Cats. I don't know if you come across them. And bizarrely, this guy, Lee Black Childers, who was part of the David Bowie setup, kind of saw this guy called Smithy, Smutty Smith, he just thought, God, you're the most beautiful man in the world. And he sort of says, I'll manage you in a band, but you can't play an instrument, but we'll take you to New York. And there's these photographs that Maplethorpe took of him, you know, without, you know, with these amazing tattoos. And they yeah. form this band. And it is just kind of awesome. It is just a, you know, and um, I'll have to, I'll send you a link a few of these shows because one of them, one of the guys who now lives in Iceland, you know, was in a band called the Havelinas, I think. And he was also in the Rockettes for a while, but he hated the music industry. So he, he gets this kind of job working building sites. And um, he, he's kind of there, and, he, and him and Smithy are both now not in the music business. And they have to sort of throw the rope over the edge and then go over and clean windows. And he, he writes a song called High Hopes, which decades later, Bruce Springsteen uh, releases. And he told me this kind of what, where that song comes from. He said, that's... I used to start singing this song when I was hanging off this rope, yeah. you know, high hopes, and it's like, Christ, that is, that's oh. how you, that song came together. I'll, I'll tell you one that was really, uh, she came across late, really, I had not much interest other than a relationship with the Pogues, and, and odd songs I thought was pretty good and all that, Christy McCall, yeah. uh, reading, her bi- reading her biog uh, about six months ago, oh my God, that was like, you know, aside of the obvious, the tragedy, the death thing, but uh, what a lassie she was, what a girl she was, and how she how she was revered in like a million studios where people had invited her in, and she she wouldn't take over like bullying, but she said, "Let's we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this." Oh, sweet ass, what a what a what a tragedy. I mean, and the, that uh, the Latino thing, that last album she did, I thought it was wonderful, a great album. Yes. Again, Massive production job and all that, not my cup of tea, but uh, nevertheless, for, for some music it has to be. And that last, that Latino album, that oh, was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. Yeah. It really, yeah. really was. And I again, saw, the business saw. thing, getting hit with the business all the time. No matter if you're the Everett guy with Eels, he wrote loads about that, getting hit with it. You've had a great album, the next album, they'll not back you, take your money off you. Lou Reed, Kirsty McCall, everybody had the same the same backstory in, in terms of the business. Uh, luckily, I've never been that far. I've just got a new, <laughs> I've just got a new uh, publisher, though. They own Document Records. Excellent. And it's, uh, Excellent. Document Records is the, uh, they've pretty much the biggest worldwide uh, catalogue of uh, old blues, gospel, and some Americana stuff. And they saw me playing a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, I was up playing somewhere in Manchester, something in Manchester, and uh, yeah, they've invited me in. So they've reclaimed all my back catalogue of it, 11 albums. They've sorted my PRS out. I mean, that must have took ages, and I, I, I'm not that sort of person. I can't be arsed doing it. I just, oh, I can leave it. But they've sorted it all up for me. Obviously, it's in their interest. I'm not, I'm not that naive, mm. but they're backing it. 
they're back in the new album that should have been done this year, but obviously it keeps getting called off. Hopefully that's in October again. They're paying for everything. So, uh, and I've got control of everything that I've never had in my life with the music and that. So, I think, yeah, the business side's getting better. <laughs> yes, well, that's, that's, it's good to hear. So look, so during the 80s, obviously, you know, Thatcher gets in 79, then we have, you know, like... I don't know, there's the Falkland War, then there's the minor strike. And then you sort of, during this time, were in Liverpool doing bands. But it was kind of the late 80s and early 90s, you formed the Levelers Five. Yeah, I, yeah, it was. Um, I was just, I don't know what I was doing. What, what was I doing? I was an apprentice. I was doing just living life, playing football. I used to play football. Um, but no, it really happened. Levelers Five had been going for a couple of years before Jeff actually came across and signed us at a gig. Um, so we were busy enough. I was writing Lies, Lies and Government, which later be- that became a, a Calvin Party album. And yes. uh, people, people played a whole pile of tracks from that, which was, which was, which was, which was great. And I still, um, my income when there's no gigs, I, it's band camp and I still sell, you know, a few things, which is, which is good. But um, yeah, Thatcher and all that, God, you need to go back there. Uh, I never thought it could get any worse, but it has. That's my opinion. And don't start with it. Don't bring uh, don't bring politics into it. No, I know, I know. It's um, it affects everything. It affects everything. It's a terrible times. Terrible times. It yes. Really but the level is five. I mean, it was kind of a. Did you when you? I mean, it's a bit trivial to ask, but you know, because there was the other band from Brighton. Did you think, oh shit? Can you believe it? There's another band called the Levelers. Yeah, of course. It was a it was a pain. Uh, John Peel. They were obviously they did a lot more uh, trade than we did and played a lot more gigs than we did. Uh, but bless Peel, of course. He said, "All I can say is look for the five at the end of the levels." Uh, he he said that. I never met them. I think they were. Uh, I got the impression they were a bit pissed off with us uh, for whatever reason. Um, and somebody put their pictures on our on the BBC things and all that it's actually it's got levelers five and our songs but it's actually pictures of the levelers i don't know who did that and i can't be asked doing anything about it i'm not bothered yeah um, but uh, yeah, it, yeah it was a pain but we just stuck with it two albums two or three singles um and then that was it um, derek had come along derek Ryder's manager with uh gavin who was james's original drummer he was drumming for us uh and it all got out of hand for various reasons and yeah level has packed it in yeah and with with uh with nine gigs booked to 10 gigs booked in europe in 10 days time and i started calvin party off uh within that 10 days and we did the we did the gigs and that was calvin party up and running does it say here? four or five albums calvin party i think and and again Pete was great i phoned him up direct and i said listen levels are done uh, Calvin Party, are you going to back us and all that? And, <laughs> typical Peel. Uh, let us know when you're back from this thing. Uh, you've got a session as soon as you're back. Yes. So, well, uh, so what was the moment? What, what was the moment that you decided to pack in the Levelers Five? What you know, was there a partic- particular sort of conversation or just a, a sort of a, a con- yeah a moment that you thought that's it? I've had enough. Uh, I think it was. Uh, I wanted more, the Levelers Five, we didn't have a drum kit, but uh, uh, the ex-partner Carlton, she had a, a snare drum, and Ian had a giant, uh, this giant African drum thing, used to beat the hell out of. And we'd been together a few years by that time. Derek coming in and, and promising us things and getting signed with Factory and all that, none of that worked out, partly my fault for being an arse at the time. And uh, yeah, and it just, a bit stressful and I wanted something more like regular beats I guess and that that was so it had to change I think you've got a you've got a there's a period you can go in there and that's it it wears itself out I think yeah it's, well I, you know, I sort of realized and you know you sort of with Echo and the Bunny Men and all that we did we did a whole lot of good things Jeff at Probe helped us Peel helped us enormously uh so we could have carried on but it was just it was personally uh, as pals together, it, 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 it run its course, and that that, that was it. Did you um, um, did you have any other record labels kind of keen on you? I'm amazed that someone like Creation Records didn't sort of come in 
with an offer or something like that? A few people did, and but it all went through Jeff. And we'll leave it there. I'm not too sure what happened, but I know a few people asked, and we never got anything. Yeah, and we got we got stopped at a couple of gigs, some North London gigs in the nineties, and asked could we sign. And uh, again, my naivety. Again, I just said, listen, get in touch with Jeff at, at Probe, and uh, let's see what happens. And no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Nothing ever it's, it's a bit different with the. I have to say the Miles Copeland because you know he 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 manages the police. You know it's strange because he loses a fortune. You know with this kind of five act tour, which is a disaster because Lou Reed doesn't come out of the toilet. Then you know the punk movement sort of starts, and he's kind of got his brother Stuart in the police, who are doing really badly. So they kind of they right? they become a backup band for Cherry Vanilla for a while. And then you know his other brother is a booking agent, and he said, "Well, we've got some gigs in America." Now, basically, he said the most important gig that the police ever played was in front of four people. And it was like, oh, well, we might as well do the gig, even though there's four. But one of them is kind of quite an influential sort of DJ in, on the college radio. And he gets, he sort of picks up on it. And then a guy from A&M Records you know, also picks up. But what Miles does, which is quite clever, he, he, he pays for everything, you know, all the recording. And he goes to A&M Records and says, you can have the album, but... There's no cost. You don't have to go to your manager. You don't have to go to the accountant. You know, this is it. And it's like, oh, well, we might as well put it out. We've got nothing to lose. And it's a bit like, and that was his cleverness, you know. Hey, thanks for that. Uh, that's because uh, Document Records, are put, there's a lovely, beautiful studio. Uh, a lot of people have been in off Lark Lane in Liverpool. don't know if you know it. And it's the Motor Museum. It used to be the Pink Museum. In fact, we did the first two levels, five albums there. We recorded them there. Uh, and we got, the last album was done there, and we're going back there. And uh, I document records are paying for everything. Uh, and I've no, as, although they're doing that, I've no, uh, I've no record label anymore. Uh, um, Pro Plus is finished, so I am actively looking for a record label. Right. And, uh, and that's, uh, thank you. Yes. Well, what, 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 so Miles said, what you've got to do, you've got to make it easy for the person to say yes if you're negotiating. Or you can make it, you know, easy to say no. But if you make it easy to say yes, they'll probably say yes. So it's a bit like, yeah, well, right. you might as well, you know, it's like you don't have to, you don't have to get 100,000 from your accountant or the, your boss. Uh, you know, you and that's so just... simple as well, isn't it? What a simple move. Yeah. Why didn't anybody think of that? Jesus. Wow. Yes. But they've, with them getting all my, the PRS sorted out for me and my ownership of the, of, I think it's 153 songs altogether on PRS. I've got the publishing rights back again. I own them again. And um, they said that there's a link there with what you just said. They said, because they, they said a lot of the blues and the gospel stuff to Netflix and to films and, and stuff like that in America. And uh, um, they said the most important thing is, yes, the song, but also when you're approaching somebody, uh, you say there is no connection with anybody else. This song is completely 100% owned by us or J.D. Meteor, John Donaldson. Yeah. So they, they, they don't have to go, oh my God, what if somebody claims it? And, and they said it's, it's, that is absolutely fundamental in selling your work. It has to be very easy for the people to take it. To say yes. And let you to say yes. Yeah. Just make... on the phone, as soon as I'm off this, I'm on the, I'm on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. kind of, it's interesting when you hear somebody who's obviously been quite successful, I mean, really successful, because they also, you know, he starts a record label, IRS, and they sign REM, and, you know, it's a bit like, but the yeah. interesting thing, even with REM, it's like, you know, we signed for six records, they did six records, and then at the end they said, well, you know, that's great, but, you know, we're really honourable, we're not going to do anything weird, you know, and, I don't know. It's quite. It's quite an interesting story on that front. But anyway, that's that. Mm -hmm. So with Calvin Party, because there was, the, you know, you did what one of the classic albums, Life and Other Sex Tragedies. Oh yes. That that <laughs> was that that kind of that was. I I do remember John Peel playing that a lot, and that was kind yeah. of one of those ones. Can you remember when you brought that together? Um. I can look at my notes that I made before. Because <laughs> this is, because the Kelvin party slips into the world that is Britpop, isn't it? Um, do you reckon? Yeah, I suppose so. I, yeah, I suppose so. Uh, I think, oh, 1994. 1994. There you go. 
And uh, yeah, I think another sex tragedies. Yeah, yeah, I probably could. Yeah, I could probably see that. Yeah, ninety-four. Lies, lies, and government. Ninety-six. Uh, Never as black. There was a gap. I went off and got educated. Came off built, working on rooftops, and uh, ended up. Yeah, ended up teaching critical theory and stuff like that. Cultural studies and all that. And Never Was Black 2004, Goddard's Girlfriend 2008. And that was the end. And I moved to Amsterdam to start a new life. Carol had threw me out. We'd been together 20 odd years. It was in Levels 5 and Cabin Park with me. We broke up and all that. And ended up with my new partner in uh, Amsterdam with loads of, no, Rotterdam, with loads of friends there and pals through the gigs. So that was the start of a new life. Um, life and other sex tragedies. Um, a lot of this stuff I never listened to at all. I couldn't face it. Uh, and there were certain people, in fact, somebody down Essex way, a guy called Jay, a, a pal guy, he ended up meeting me at, uh, at uh, half and half biscuit shows and stuff like that, became a fan. And he'd be, he'd be emailing me, giving me messages and stuff, and, and saying, no, you listen, you've got to listen to this song again. And I, I literally had a generation of not listening to any of my back catalogue at all. I couldn't. It was painful. I don't know why. And he got me having a, you know, reflecting on it, having another look. I wrote some crap songs. I wrote some pretty damn good songs. <laughs> I never realised. I just couldn't listen to them. And I think it was more the production than anything else, or my deliberate lack of production. Right. And they're saying, look, you've just got to have one more take. And me, typical, saying, no, I'm not. That's it. That's all we do. Even though I'd be singing out of tune, even though some beats dropped or something like that. And I got around all that <clears throat> through a bunch of pals and fans. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not pretty happy. I'm very happy with what I've done, with a lot of what I've done. Absolutely. Yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's, no, not at all, but a lot of it, damn right. I should be happy with it. So I guess, I mean, I think anybody who's been in that kind of intensity of a band and you and having a relationship stuff dynamic as well which is a bit Fleetwood Mac isn't it it's always going to be <laughs> it's always it's always going to be a bit tricky isn't it uh, yeah absolutely yeah I forgot about that story yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was some there was some story about them uh, like almost abusing each other on stage didn't they? the Fleetwood Mac thing apparently I once yes. read somewhere. not physically but they're, they're actually singing the lyric looking at the other, the other person in the band that they just collapsed with and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I do remember them kind of because the lyrics are so kind of painful, aren't they? When you read, yes. I mean, when I first heard that album, I was probably, I don't know, I wasn't that old really. So I didn't kind of understand the backstory and it all just seemed quite, mm. you know, kind of almost Radio 2 at times. And it, was a, it was a classic, in the end, it was, a, it was a classic pop album. I mean, good songs are good songs. Whether it's yes. Perry on one side or uh, Captain Beefheart screeching or Frank Zappa or Fleetwood Mac on the other. A good, for me, a good song's a good song. I don't care what genre it is. It's, no, enough of that genre. And also, they would call it the time, the time frame put on music. I just don't understand it. Music's music. And a painting's a painting, a great photograph by Robert Kappa's a great photograph by Robert Kappa or Tina Lodotti, who was actually here. I found out she was in El Palo. Right. She came over uh, to help. She packed it all in. She was a, did you know she was a Hollywood Hollywood actress? No. She was loved by many. She was the, uh, yeah, she was the girl he had to photograph. Went down and met uh, Frida Kahlo, got revolutionised, ended up coming over here to help us. Franco's coming through and coming through where I am, the roads there, they have a parade every year. Although Malagueno was a leaving because it was a Republican place. Right. And what Franco had been doing is massacring everybody when he got to a Republican place, of course. So they were all legging it up, up here where the beach is. They were legging it up the playa all the way up to Almeria. Only about three months ago, I nearly danced for about two hours solid. Somebody told me in my local bar, Fre uh, Tina Madotti actually came here. She was walking the streets of El Palo. God. And there's a song on the new album, Walking with Tina. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, all these, all these people, uh, Tina Madotti's work, um, whoever, photographers, painters, architects, whatever. Time is nothing, and time is, time is a legacy that's added to. Not with music. It, it seems that you've got a time frame and that's it. No, you're too old, you're too this. You're too, no, fuck off. You're writing songs, you're writing songs, it's music. 
And uh, the the idea that Captain Beefheart's crap or Zappa, I keep referring to the same ones, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, whatever. Uh, well, that's 20 years old, it's crap. What are you talking about? It's not. It's like a, the other creative piece. And, and it's only, it, it seems to me only in music that the, this thing is used as a thing to beat you, time is used to beat you. I don't get it. I don't yes. get it at all. But do you think, it's it's, do you think it's changed a bit though? Because in our days, it was very, A, it was very tribal and it was very much about the youth culture. But I sort of wonder if the young people, not all of them, but quite a lot, aren't quite so obsessed about that tribalism. They're probably into other things that we have no idea about, which is good. You know, that's what sort of youth culture should be. But I just wondered if now music is a little bit more relaxed and it isn't just about that thing about, you know, mm. a, a generation. Because I did an interview with Richard Strange who, who said that he was two years too early for punk, you know, bizarrely. Uh, you know, and he was almost yeah. mid-twenties by then. So he said that you know, this was like 70, uh, right. 75. So when punk came along, it was almost like they were feeling a bit tired and also looked a little bit of, a bit old compared to, you know, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and all that bunch. And I, but I wonder if that's kind of altered now because of people like Iggy Pop and the Rolling Stones and, you know, like David Bowie still sort of was, was doing things, though he had that gap towards the end, but then he did bring out those two albums. And I just wonder if we're a little bit more relaxed about the older musician who you're singing. I think, I think it's a bit strange when you, what, what, when you go and listen to a, an artist who's singing about what they wrote when they were very young and it was all about lustful excitement and you're thinking, yeah, but you're an old man now. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh... Mm, I get that. Uh, you know, I'll just I'll just scribble out this couple of songs from the new album. Too. Yeah, no, I understand. Maybe you're right. Hopefully, hopefully you're right. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're not so kind of hung up on that so much anymore because because it's still curious when you know people are still you know like Iggy Pop. You know when he brings an album out, I always I keep using him mainly because he's still alive and he, he he seems to always have that potential to do some new album. Even the Rolling Stones. I mean. I don't know if you heard the, the Mick Jagger single that he brought out for lockdown, which, you know, was kind of all right, you know. Oh, I didn't hear, I didn't hear that, no. I didn't hear the uh, album, it, it, it had been and gone uh, almost immediately. Uh, it was McCartney doing some songs as well. He brought an album out. Yeah, did you hear it yourself? No. I haven't heard it actually, but I did listen to the Mick Jagger ones because he referenced all these things that we've done in lockdown, which is, you know, doing a samba. Well, I didn't, but you know, all these things that you could have been doing in lockdown, like doing a samba class, and he he references it. On you know, you can see he's just kind of had a bit of fun with doing it. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can't. I, he's not somebody who you'd imagine takes himself too seriously during all this period, really. You know, you wouldn't have thought so. I wonder where he lives now. I think he's in the states, or is he in London or somewhere? No, I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, wherever he is, people aren't moving much, are they? So, you know, you're a bit stuck. You know, that's no. a strange thing, isn't it? I mean... Oh, yeah. three, three, um, three bookings in for the studio we've lost this, this year. No, last year. And a whole bunch of gigs and stuff like that. And as I said before, uh, it's looking like October's going to be starting again, so... So when yeah. did you... So with this... Because you did an album... Your first solo album was kind of 2011, wasn't it? 10 years ago. Aye, that's right. You know, and that was on Pro Plus. And then you've got a new album that is being recorded or has been recorded. No, it's the, the, the last one, the Batch and Pullers, was two years ago. And this, this, the new one should have been last year. December, uh, we were booked in for December. Right. Obviously, obviously it couldn't happen. Now we're booked in for this October. Uh, and yeah, it's JD Meatyard. All new, all new material, uh, and I don't know how it's going to come out. Um, Document Records have said if we can, if we don't manage to get a, uh, <clears throat> they have a label, Document Records, although it doesn't really fit what they do. Um, so we're now that we've, we're hopeful, we're pretty certain it's going to happen in October. The recordings, eighth of October. Um, It'll be released in January, probably. And um, we're really working on trying to get a, yeah, a new record label for, for it. Yes. So, and that'll be the sixth, I think, JD Meet Your album. Uh, the first one was very much, it was a break from, and it was intentional, a break from a band sort of album. It was me and two pals from uh, Rotterdam, uh, Lassie, and it was very much acoustic, very much. It was meant to be that way. It was the break 
from Levelers 5 through Calvin Party and all that. Me all of a sudden with an acoustic guitar. Um, but the JDM Yard thing since then, it's been, yeah, it's been banging, it's been electric, it's been all sorts of different things. You know, it's, there's no, no regular theme throughout an album or anything. It's a bunch of songs, I don't say it's anything else. The politics is always there, which I get criticised for. Yeah, I, I remember um, four kids in a Gaza beach. Uh, I got uh, I got a, a message about that, and uh, we found out where you live. <laughs> so uh, nothing happened. So. Blimey, Please. that's a bit scary. I took, all, I took all the comments off on the YouTube for that. But, uh, um, no, I'm really looking forward to it. And there has been, as it happens, recently reading the Kirsty McCall thing, there has been a Latino, very slight Latino thing on a couple of songs. I live here. I, um, I talked to, um, I've been here for four or five years now, five years or so. Um, and I like it. It's good. Um, there's the there's a Tina Bedotti song and there's a homage to my local bar, Herradura. Uh are you are you surprised that you've gone from sort of Glasgow, Liverpool, Rotterdam? And... <laughs> uh, yeah, I have absolutely Castle Milk in Glasgow uh, to near Manchester, near Preston, in fact, and then from there it was uh, Liverpool for a few years, and then Liverpool to Man when I got thrown out. I went to Manchester for about four years. Made a lot of friends in Manchester and that, played a lot of gigs and stuff and all that. And uh, yeah, Manchester, Rotterdam for a few years, Rotterdam, Malaga for a few years. Um, I'm happy though. I think it's a great thing. I'd be a different person if it hadn't happened. I've had some sore, sore hits along the way, as everybody has. Um, but no, I'm, I feel uh, a very lucky person to go through all that. Yes. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. I'm and I still write uh, almost by the day. I don't finish a song by the day, but I, I think on this damn old phone here, I think it's 700. <laughs> uh, don't drop the phone down the toilet then. No, no, no. Uh, you got 748. Cheesy, crazy. That's okay. me going, I'll be in the bar we're going, no, 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 stop. It goes on a lot. It's I don't know. I, I'd have had more money maybe if I'd have done. If I'd have stuck at the teaching thing, I'd have been better off. But uh, no, it's, it's me. It's my life. It is. I'm not saying I'm an artist or anything. It's just the thing that I, that, that drives me, and that's what I. That's what I've done for years and years and years. Yeah. And I'm still writing now, and I have no problem with it. I don't force myself. I find myself having uh, to get the sheets of paper like that. Like a tone, and the guitar's always there. Um, I have to do it. I, maybe it's a weakness on my part. Uh, maybe I should have seen a, a therapy, <laughs> a more more therapy than I've had, I should say. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe I should have. Have, have you had therapy? And um, yeah, yeah, when I got thrown out of the long-term relationship, and with three kids there, with three wins, uh, that was a hard hit. Christ, that must have been tough. Yeah, it's yeah, you know, it's, it's life, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we, we, we uh, yeah, and I that got a couple of albums out of that <laughs> on Calvin but yeah, never as never as black, and that was weird. Uh, a pal that heard never as black before we split, he said, "Have you split up with Carl?" I said, "No." He says, "This this album sounds like you've split up." We split up about a year later. Now, what the hell? How do you explain that? So that's 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 a weird one. He thought we'd already done because of the songs, but we haven't. But then we did. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and I write about all sorts of things. So with, the, things. with songs like "Goodbye," "Killing Me," "Plan." Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I tend not to, well, I don't know. I, do, do we all not write our stories in different ways? Yeah. I, I tend to be a bit clear about it. But, uh, I don't know. Goddard's Girlfriend, the, the title was, I, I was putting on a photography show in uh, Arles, uh, in France. Beautiful big exhibition place in Arles, in France. And um, some ex-students of mine showing their work. And uh, 
Goddard's girlfriend came out of there. And it's, they're all, yeah, the songs about what's happened, nothing else. That's interesting because I was listening to an interview of kind of last year or the year before of Justin Towns Earl, who's Steve Earl's son, and right. um, who, who had a very troubled life. And um, yeah, and he, and he sort of talks about songwriting and he said, you can't, you can't have diary songs. You just can't get your diary and sort of make them into songs. You have to sort of work on them. Do you have a, a similar process with your own material where you think, no, that's just a little bit too obvious I need to sort of create something a bit more than it just looking like I just scribbled it into a diary because I've just been feeling a bit emotional today uh, yeah I think yeah I, nothing goes direct and it doesn't come direct over anything like a diary or anything else no it doesn't it could be I could be practicing one song for the studio and I end up playing something else and thinking where's that come from and then I'll look at my notes I've been jotting down I'm trying to get something a DH, uh, uh, what do you, a DNA song. So my, my grandparents from Dungannon in, in Ireland uh, to the Carlton area of Glasgow. And then again, my, my trip, my DNA line, starting off in, uh, in Dungannon in Ireland and coming all the way along the, the path. I'm trying to think of some way of wording that. How yes. can I do that? So I do work on things. I can't just say I was born, my grandparents were born in, no, I'll work some sort of narrative into it, makes it, uh, and then that could be something simple like descriptions of buildings in a thing, I don't know. I don't know, and I, and I use other things, we all use our different ways, don't we? I'm doing some, uh, what is it, uh, Life by Other Means, as somebody once said about great, uh, great literature, and I'm using that in terms of I'm a big film fan. I've been for forever. And I'm using that for that life by other means. Yes. How I'm, I'm talking about it is, again, I'm using film titles. There's no, there's, none of my words are there. It's just titles of films. But I, I construct them to make it into a legible narrative and all, and all that of my favourite things. So there's all sorts of different ways of, I don't know, getting your songs together. Yeah. And the, and the moods as well. So what films, not, what films would you say have heavily influenced you in your life? Uh, mean Streets. Robert De Niro, classic. Uh, Scorsese. It, it changed my I thought film, films, uh, films were movies and then I saw Mean Streets and it was like, Jesus. Now you've got Jim Jarmusch, Scorsese, uh, yeah. Tons of stuff. I saw Nomadland the other week. Did you see it? No, but it's on my list of films to see. But I feel feel like I need to be in the right mood because I can imagine this is going to be quite a heavy one. It's yeah, it's um, it's good. But she's great. McDormand's great. She's a great actress, great character actress. She was in the debut. She's married to one of the uh, Corn Brothers, isn't she? I think. Right. And she was in their debut, uh, Blood Simple, which of course is the title of another one of my songs, <laughs> <laughs> J.D. Meteor. Uh, yeah, it's it's worth a watch, um, which which got me digging this out. Right, American. Are you, read, are you seeing this? All oh, right, you're reading it the right way. Then. <laughs> yeah, she said, Dorothy Lang, uh, what a star, uh, much like Tina Madai. Yeah, it's, it's the same story, except it's in the nineteen Nomadland, except in the nineteen eighties, as opposed to Lang's American Exodus in the nineteen thirties in America, where it's yeah. Disaster for everybody, um, but it's, it's it's well worth watching. She's yeah, great. I do, I do. I, what, it's, I think it's on Netflix, isn't it? I think. Or, uh, I've not got a TV. We don't have a TV. It's it is on one of those channels that you know. I've just suddenly realised you can just stream things. You know, you have to pay and stream something. You can take a subscription for a month, and I think I think I really I sort of found it the other day and thought, oh yes, I've got to go and spend ten dollars or something, which will be fine. But I just need to be in the right mood for it. Because um, yeah. I suppose in sort of in the eighties, then on the film front, there was the kind of there was the Jim Jarmusch films like Down by Law and um, Stranger Than Paradise, oh. and there was and there, oh. was and there was Betty Blue. We love Betty Blue, and then you know the Mike Lee films like Naked, which came out, which was stunning, and uh, right. yes, and, and uh, Meantime, which was a really grim film based in London. But then there was also those kitchen. I must have missed that. Missed, missed that one. Meantime. Meantime, God, that's got an amazing cast. It's got um, the guy from Quadrophenia and our other friend who was in 
oh shit, I'm not going to remember all these people. But it's a really depressing film. But we love depressing films. And there was those, all those kitchen sink dramas of Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Taste of Honey, A Kind of Loving. Did you also right. do those kind of movies as well in your life? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, uh, Mean Streets, again, as soon as I got it, Mean Streets got me interested in film. Um, as usual, I started traipsing backwards and then got into the expression, German expressionist film. Murnau and all this sort of stuff, uh, Fitzgeraldo and all that. Um, and uh, then that led me to Herzog, Werner uh, Herzog and all his, all his films. Um, so I was a bit on the heavy side uh, of, the, of the films and all that, but no, no regrets. Uh, yes. It's a great thing. We have a lovely uh, artifarty cinema in the centre of Malaga, uh, Cine Albinith. Uh, and it's marvellous. It was the, the Nomad Lamb last, last week. It was the first time in, oh my God, a year. Then over a year we've been in a we've been in the picture house. So it was great, great to be back. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. In fact, we're watching at the minute uh, the second series of uh, Twin Peaks. So there you go. I know that's not a film, but I still think it's marvellous uh, all these years later. I've yeah. never seen I've never seen the uh, the third series, but uh, my my wee Robert, one of my sons, he says it's well worth seeing. Twenty five years later, I know that's a bit tricky, but I do I'd recommend one film that I've just come out called The Sound of Metal. If you get a chance to see that, have you come across it? Do you know the storyline? You've just jammed there. You just yes. Jammed. It was what, um, what was it called? The Sound of Metal. So this is about the drummer who loses his hearing. Yeah. And it's brilliantly acted and it's an amazingly well-crafted film. It will be one of those ones that will be, you know, one of the top five films of the year, basically. Yeah. Sound, Sound of Metal. Of yeah, I wrote it down. I'll be getting that. I never Have... saw the Pogues one either. I don't know if you were interested in that. The one what? what which one? The Pogues one. Well, no, it was, uh, it was actually Shane, wasn't it? Shane McGowan. Was it about three or four months ago? Johnny Depp was a producer. God, I haven't seen that. I know there was one on Polystyrene from um, X-Ray Specs. Yeah. No, there was Shane McGowan about three months ago. Uh, Johnny Depp was actually here in Spain. They were promoting it up in the north of Spain somewhere and all that. I've not seen that one yet. But I'd like to that. I've, I've, I've had, a, of course, uh, two or three or four um, Pogues biographies. I'm surprised any of them are alive. At all, I'm amazed that any of them have come through what they what they put themselves through. <laughs> yes, because I did an interview with the accordion player. Now I can't remember his name, but he I've read his book recently, and that was kind of so debauched it was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, they lived a life. That's that's absolutely for sure. <laughs> it was um, yeah, it was it was oh. quite something. I can't remember his name now. Actually, I don't know if it's. No, I don't, I've got a few there, but I'm not going to get them out. But, but the, the, doing the, the Christmas song with him. Uh, now I find beautiful every Christmas and, and almost weeping every Christmas at the same time. Uh, she was marvellous with the, with the pogs and doing, and doing that song. It was, it was, it was great. It was yes, great. and she does a fantastic song with Johnny Marr on guitar, which I think is called, I don't know. Dust. Yeah, that's right. Free yeah. World or something like that. Something. It's just like you listen and you think, God, this is a great guitarist. And then you realise, oh, it's Johnny Marr from the Smiths. Yeah, well, Johnny Marr's got it right with Morrissey. So let's, uh, I'm, on, I'm on Johnny's side. <laughs> Unfortunately, we all are, aren't we, really? It was, um, yeah. but anyway, that's good. So look, on the, on the schedule front, so you, you're coming over in October to do the album. And also you've got dates with Half Man, Half Biscuit, in theory. Right. Yeah, yes. I've started praying again. Um, yes, Blackpool uh, Winter Gardens, a great venue in Blackpool. It, right. that's, that's the 8th of October. Home Firth, a beautiful venue, uh, old picture house, Home Firth, in, it's in East Yorkshire somewhere. Yeah. And then with Manchester the Ritz, uh, um, the so students, big student place in Cardiff. Uh, I, get, I tend to get, only because I know the guy, we've, we've been together for years and years and years, um, I get first option on the gigs. You know, first refusal. Right. Um, but I've got the, I've, I've told Pod at Gig Cartel, I said, look, uh, anything that's in London, please, you know, immediately let me know. Because I've got the flights to book and everything. Uh, and I always want to do the London shows. Uh, I always really enjoy them. And they tend to be, although it's £6.50 for a pint of Guinness, uh, 
Uh, yeah, they get they get decent crowds, good crowds in London. They yeah. sell out actually every show. I mean, they're not gigantic shows, fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand. That's a lot of people at twenty odd pounds a ticket, and they tend to they tend to sell out, especially the London gigs. Um, so as soon as they come up, and he likes he does like going down uh, Norwich Way, East Anglia Way, as Nigel. So that's then, right. This is as good. soon as there's something there. Uh, I'm not saying anything about guest lists, okay? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll that's be fine. Okay. That's fine. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. Be so, good. yeah, it's, hopefully it's all going to start again in October. So are you going with a band, by the way? Are you going to get a band together for this? Yeah, I've always got... I've got um, Gary, he plays percussion, snare and a floor tom. And that's that's Gary. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's just the two of us. Um, more with this album, I want it to be... Uh, a four-piece band with this, with this album. So I've got Dave, the guitarist, who's played for years and years and years, played in Calvin Party with me. He lives in Manchester. Hopefully Dave will be back in and a uh, bass player. Uh, Neil played bass. Neil from the Half and Half Biscuit played bass on the last album. Yes. I don't think I can ask him to play uh, bass live for me. Uh, I'll, I'll get a bass player as well. So it'll be a four-piece band for the next bunch of gigs, as much Fantastic. as it can that's, be. That's I'm good. Very much very much looking forward to it. This can be excellent. Now, look, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old or 16-year-old self starting out, is there any kind of advice you'd have just whispered in their ear that, you know, you would have thought, God, I wish wished I'd sort of known this. But now with wisdom and, and reflection, you can you can impart this knowledge. Something, something that I would never have said. I would have said all my life, be yourself. Now on reflection, <laughs> I was there. Watch the business side, will you, pal? Just keep an eye on the business side. No, I wouldn't really say that. I would say be yourself. Yes. Be, be yourself. Express yourself. And be honest Be honest about things. I know that's very old-fashioned, but it's... Uh, no, I've, I've stuck to it, and, uh, and that's that. But I think uh, that, that how much success being yourself would bring me, I'm not too sure. Um, but I'm, I'm terrible. I'm still thinking uh, I'm going to get back to New York and play more gigs there. I'm going to be playing gigs in Amsterdam and Berlin, um, and I'm going to be playing gigs around uh, around the UK. So, I'm, why why should I be thinking that? It's just the way I am. I'm going to get this new album out, and I'm going to be all over the place doing shows. And yes. I do get, I do sell uh, when I'm doing the gigs. Uh, I, I've got a lot of merch there. I'm sorry, that's, I hate that. See, I'm terrible. I hate that phrase, merch and all that shit. I need it. I need to sell. You know, uh, when I've got the gigs, I get a spike on the band camp. You know how that works. Yeah. And I, you know, for two or three days after every gig, I get a spike on there, and I've got some money coming in. I get a bugger all. Like you still get about fifty quid. We got fifty quid to support half and half to support Echo and the Bunnymen in nineteen ninety one. You still get nine fifty quid to support half and half biscuit. Although I'm renegotiating it. <laughs> I might get a, I might get a hundred. <laughs> yeah. But once you're out there, you people are seeing you, and people, you know, your, your friends and stuff, fans, and you're making touch wood. Generally, you're making new fans. Say, no, I've never heard of you before. Who are you? Where are you from? And all that sort of stuff. They've often heard a Calvin party, but not Jerry Me or that. And I've that partly with the absence of uh, with John Peel. Yeah. But being, being a vegetarian, then, how come the name? to make I had to get a name up quick uh, and it had to be some I didn't want to call it my name uh, and it had to be something that clearly signaled a solo it wasn't a band anymore <clears throat> a, a lunatic called Ralph Eugene Meteyard uh, photographer does the weirdest shit uh, I, was, I was a bit of a fan of his I'm a vegetarian and I th- don't laugh I thought it was ironic so why did I pick Meat Yard? I mean, yeah, but that's the one I'm stuck with. So that's who I am now. So yeah, <laughs> that's where it came from. Yeah, industrial farming and everything else. And I write Meat Yard. No, but yeah, that's the way it is. And that's, uh, I'm, I'm going with that. I could, the, uh, we were talking with Document Records, the publisher and that, and they said, do you want to change your name, new start and all that? And I said, no, maybe it's just me being idle. But why should I relaunch it? I have five, six albums now in JD Meteor. Yeah. A lot of people do make that connection between that and Calvin Party and stuff like that. And I'll explain to them, yeah, I've been a vegetarian for 
28 years. So what? So you know, just have a laugh about it. Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm going to go. Yeah. Mind. Okay. No. No. No problem. Oh, no. Barcelona no. playing uh, Athletic Bilbao. Uh, Athletic Madrid at the minute, down at, my, down at my local. Right, okay, look, take care. I'll want, I can send you the down. link if you want. Okay, take care. No, I'm not going this second. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying. Thanks okay. very much. I really enjoyed the chat. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, no, it's great to, you know, because I've been thinking, oh, the Kelvin party and then blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, my God, right, okay, I'm, I'm homing in here. This is all good stuff. So um, it's fantastic. But, yeah, well, I can send you the link and then you can always use it wherever you want to and um you know people love listening to a bit of chat they do yeah. so what happens so, this then now what, what what do you do with it now so i i sort of you know take it and i sort of um put it as an mp3 and i sort of podcast interview basically so and and people you know i found interesting enough in this in this kind of time and world that people quite enjoyed l- discovering a new artist or not discovering a new artist but just kind of hearing somebody that they thought I've never heard that person before and Uh, suddenly it kind of makes them go oh fuck I didn't know anything about them and now I do so um it's good so um yeah and I and I can send you a link to to the interview please do so any any questions or anything uh I don't know why you would have anything about the gigs or anything you see is down your way just just let me know yes Uh, and please send I don't know if you use cds anymore do you you actually play CDs anymore well, but anyway that. yeah whatever when the new album comes out I'll, I want to send it you yeah that'd be uh, fantastic Gideon Coastal gets CD Gideon Coastal he still plays my new albums so whilst it's not peeled sorry Gideon but uh, uh, yeah he still backs my new albums he plays two or three songs off every album I release who's that? Gideon uh, Gideon, oh, Gideon Coastal, yeah uh, for six, six music and again that really helps. It helps a lot, and yeah. you can see that in the in the in the yeah the, whatever the band camp thing, the spike thing, and all that. He plays a track the day after. Boom, it it, it works. So he's still backing me. So it's uh, of hope. I don't know hope for what, but uh, <laughs> making songs and playing shows. It, this is good. We'll have, sort, we'll have to sort it out. Yes. Well, look. Okay. This is great. Well, thank you ever so much. Have a great day and, and enjoy the game. I will. It's almost stopped raining here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Much, much appreciated, pal. See Keep you. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> you too. And that, dear listener, as you guess, is the end of the interview. I love leaving those bits in because they're so fumbly and um, slightly apologetic sometimes. Anyway, that was me in conversation with JD Meatyard who also goes by the well. He doesn't go. His real name is uh, John Donaldson from The Kelvin Party and The Levelers 5. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. Um, lots of indie bands and also a certain obsession with David Bowie. So... There you go. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.